Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. We're going to be studying together this morning verses 1 through 17. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from us in the row there in front of you. You'll see uh, kind of sprinkled throughout those pockets uh, a Bible, a pew Bible. It's on page 846, John chapter 13, page 846 in that pew Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, and we, we would like for you to take that as a gift from us so that you can have the Word of God with you. And so please, uh, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 this morning. In our study of the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, we have come to the place where Jesus turns from the crowds, uh, sort of from His public ministry, if you will, and is now communing with his men, instructing them before he goes to the cross. This is the beginning of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, if you've perhaps heard it entitled that. Uh, Jesus gives a lot of instruction here. Uh, John the Apostle gives us uh, much more information here than any of the other Gospels. And um, this is the beginning of that discourse. It, it is quite lengthy. There's a, a lot of uh, promises that Jesus uh, gives us in these uh, chapters that come uh, to bear even in our understanding of our passage this morning. As we think about uh, John chapter 13, uh, we need to be thinking about the entire context of this upper room discourse. And there's some things that we want to be thinking about. In fact, it is in these chapters that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And, and, and so uh, even today on, on what we would call in the church calendar Pentecost Sunday, uh, we remember that the, uh, the apostles waited in an upper room. So we think about the upper room discourse and Jesus giving this instruction and they go once again to wait in an upper room for uh, uh, some sort of a signal or a sign that uh, that something is, is about to happen. And of course, we know on the day of Pentecost, the, the promised Holy Spirit comes. And so uh, even as we think about that day on the church calendar today, we are sort of engaging in that uh, promise here from Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse. And in the passage in front of us, we see the very first thing that Jesus does here is not teach with words only, but also teaches with example and by example. And so um, be thinking about that as we consider the, 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 the broadness of this teaching that Jesus is about to do uh, here, what he does here at the beginning. And in this passage, indeed, we see the true humility of servanthood. So we think about the great high priest, our great creator God, uh, incarnated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the, the fact that he could preach or teach or give instruction, and yet at the very beginning here we see this exemplification of servanthood. Jesus exemplifies servanthood. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read aloud just the first five verses of this passage for our New Testament reading. And then we'll pray and, and then dig in together. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil 
had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them the towel that was wrapped around him. You may be seated. That is God's word in the New Testament reading this morning. May it be a blessing to us as you've heard it read aloud, both in the old and new. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we cannot help but think as we will study this morning and consider the coming of the Holy Spirit today, the idea of washing, the washing of regeneration the washing of the daily need of confession in our lives, the instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ gives here by example and by teaching. And uh, Lord, we are humbled by this. And we pray that we would continue to be humbled this morning as we consider that your Spirit who does indwell us and who did inspire these words in the original autographs can now, for those whom he indwells, uh, he, he can illuminate our eyes and our hearts and our minds to an understanding. And we pray not only for knowledge that could, if it is alone, puff us up, but Lord, we pray for a knowledge that leads to exercise of wisdom and grace as from your hand. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to do that in our hearts. Lord, I pray for those who are in our midst that do not know you, that your Spirit would awaken them to their need of Christ because of their sin and because of your holiness, that we pray we might see those this morning too. Lord, get me out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. George Whitfield and John Wesley were contemporaries And were both preachers of the gospel. Whitfield and Wesley did not see eye to eye on all matters of doctrine, especially what we would call the doctrines of grace or, in shorthand, Calvinism. People knowing of these uh, two men and their differences would sometimes ask questions in regard to their disagreements. these, These are both... Uh, giants, as it were, in their time, the, the time of the, the Great Awakening, a, a time of, uh, of great conversion in the United States, especially. Um, and so people would sometimes ask, now, here are two men who love the Lord, who preach the same gospel, but yet disagree on matters of doctrine, that people would ask questions about the, these disagreements. It's been reported that Whitfield was once asked by an attender of one of his uh, preaching times, do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? Now that is a provocative question. And Whitfield in his provocative way said no. But he continued. No. John Wesley will be so close to the throne of glory, and I will be so far away, I will hardly get a glimpse of him. 
humility. Humility in that response of Whitfield. The camaraderie, though they disagreed in the gospel, their camaraderie in the gospel, their disagreement over secondary doctrines. Humility about the placement in the kingdom did not even seem to be a thought in Whitfield's mind other than Wesley will be so close and I will be so far away that I will barely get a glimpse of him. It was, however, a dispute that arose amongst the disciples from time to time. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? In fact, it's probably right to understand that even though John doesn't report it this way, but the other gospel writers do, Luke especially, that perhaps even right before the supper, right before Jesus does what he does here, that this is the dispute that they have. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God? I I, want to be first, perhaps Peter said, though he had even an opportunity for that since he seemed to be the head of the disciples. Maybe even as we think about uh, John and, and James and their mother approaching the Lord and saying, Lord, I would want you to grant it that my sons would sit on your right and on your left. We kind of know why they're called the sons of thunder. That was a very thunderous sort of motherly thing to do. Boanerges, sons of thunder. No, this was the argument that arose. Who will be first in the kingdom? And again, this was not the first time. One commentator said this could have even been brought up as a result of where they were going to sit in regard to the feast they were about to have together or because of the way they ended up situated around the table. In other words, this is maybe fighting over who gets to sit next to dad at, at, at Thanksgiving, right? Or who gets to sit next to grandpa or whatever. But this is on a greater scale. You see, they have not quite captured the idea of the kingdom not being of this earth at this time. But rather that Jesus is going to go to the cross. But in their minds, they're elbowing their way to who gets to sit next to the king at the table, right? He's about to, he's just had this triumphal entry. And he is about to bring it to the Roman government. So they're muscling their way to the front. It is in this passage that we see an exercise of humility. And what I'd like for us to focus on this morning and learn from our Lord Jesus how we ought to serve one another. But again, we cannot only see this in the context of this passage alone. To to take it only as the lesson of humility that it certainly is, is to, to strip it from the context in which Jesus does this, which is the beginning of the upper room discourse, which is to say this is the trajectory on which he sets his men as he is headed toward the cross, so that they might understand in this moment, in some way, or at least perhaps even afterward, exactly what he was doing when he washed their feet, as symbolic, as it were, of him going to the cross, the greatest example of humility ever given. Though it is not example alone, it is necessary for our atonement, is it not? But I want us to see this humility this morning. In fact, there's a main idea written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you're tuning in through uh, the live stream this morning, this has been emailed to you. Humility is a mark of those who are true followers of Jesus. I think we can 
say that, that this is the main idea for us, but we must couch this, con- this uh, passage in the context in which we find it as well. So I want us to see this morning three actions of Jesus that teach His disciples and us about serving one another. Always with the backdrop of the context of this passage and the following passages in our mind as well. But it is true that humility is a mark of those who are true followers of Jesus. And Jesus undertakes three actions to teach this to His disciples and then by way of holy writ to teach us this as well. Number one is this, Jesus takes the posture of a servant. Jesus takes the posture of a servant in verses 1 through 4. Uh, Look at those, I know we've read them already, but look at those with me again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Isn't it amazing that John doesn't just start with that first part? Just kind of in a narrative flow here, just tell us Jesus rose from dinner and uh, uh, took took off his outer garments and put a towel around him. No, he, he prefaces it with this idea of um, the reason that Jesus does this. It's a sort of like climactic language here. It's a chain linking together several factors that move us towards what Jesus is about to do. And, 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 and this is, as it were, if you've ever been to a, 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 an orchestra concert and the orchestra is down in the pit and and, uh, and they're tuning their instruments, and you begin, to be, you begin to get the flavor of what you're about to experience. That's what's happening here as Jesus is about to wash his disciples' feet. We, we kind of get this, this language that's bringing all of this about. We first see once again that Jesus knows that his hour has come. And we've addressed this issue of the hour, the hour, the hour, correct? His coming, he is coming to the end, the culmination of his mission. The hour that he so often said, as we've seen, had not yet come. In John chapter 2 and verse 4, at the feast of the wedding at Cana. In John chapter 7 verse 30 and 820, as those who were seeking him could not because it is not yet his hour. It has now become his hour. Signaled in John chapter 12, we remember by Gentiles coming and seeking and to Philip and Andrew and saying, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus says, now is the hour. The hour is punctuated even more so by this statement of his love for them. He is about to depart out of this world Yet he has loved his own who were in the world, and he loves them to the end, to the completion of his mission. And this is one thing we must keep in mind as we think about the context of this passage. Because as they begin to understand that he is going away, he tells them, do not fret, for I am sending who? The Comforter. Another. So even as we... Think about this love to the end. Uh, Jesus is realizing that 
His time with them is coming to an end, and He has loved them to the end. He does not leave them as orphans, as He says earlier in John. But He sends another. He sends the Comforter. He loved them to the end of His mission, but it is to the expression of the Spirit coming. He says, it is good that I go away. Otherwise, the Spirit would not come. So we see this time of the hour punctuated by His Love. We also see the time of the hour punctuated by what has happened with Judas when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Uh, Please keep in mind that John is writing this gospel many, many decades after Jesus has ascended. He is reflecting upon what he recalls and what now he sees in the church these many years later as Uh, I was reminded this morning by our dear departed friend, S. Lewis Johnson. There's this reflection of the the years of Jesus' ministry. And John is able to look back upon this and say, Oh yes, at this time, this would have been the moment that we knew, or Jesus knew that Judas had been in cahoots, as it were, with the devil. This is obviously, again, as we think about the passage established more so as it moves on. Whether or not Judas had already had his initial conversation with the religious leaders or is about to, we're uncertain. John's timing about that is disputed. But there is a sense in which there is now no turning back from this moment. And that's what John's trying to do here. He's trying to say, Jesus has loved his own, those who were in the world, though he is from outside of the world, he has loved his own to the end, to the sending of the Spirit, but, but also now recognize that this is the time where Judas is about to betray Jesus. There is now no turning back. Jesus also knows what has been the Trinitarian plan from before the foundation of the world, and that all the Father had commanded him, he had done. The Father had now given full control of the situation over to Jesus, as it were, given all things into his hands, and his time has now come. He will complete what he has come to do in his mission in space and time. Remember, Jesus' life is not taken from him, He gives it away. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. Now is the time. He will be restored to His glory with the Father, but it is by way of the most horrendous means that we can ever imagine. Though in some sense we cannot fully comprehend it. Imagine the heightened emotion of all these things coming into focus. And in the midst of this, what does Jesus do? He has has already said that His soul is grieved about what he is going to face. We looked at that together previously. At this this heightened moment that John uh, paints for us here at the beginning of chapter 13. What does Jesus do? Look again at verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Jesus takes the posture of a servant. To lay aside one's garment, to take a towel and gird oneself with it was a sign of slavery. This was the clothing of a servant. This was the most menial task 
that anyone in a household was to do. And uh, many think that in a rush, perhaps even with the idea of, I want to be the one who gets to sit next to Jesus, in the, in the rush to get to the table, they had failed to take care of this very important task, to wash their feet. Jesus takes the position of a servant. He takes the position of humility It's very purposeful. It's to teach them something. It's to teach them something first visually, as we've said. It seems he does all of this without speaking first. So, just so you know, in the context of this day, when someone takes off their outer garments, the only thing that's left are their undergarments. And Jesus instead of putting on any outer garments, puts on only a towel. This is a humiliating task. In some sense, we understand the parallel of this to the cross, where he is humiliated to the utmost. He hangs, as we would understand it, through historical means, naked upon the cross. This disrobing in picture to his men is a foreshadowing of his being disrobed upon the cross. We have to imagine this correctly. Listen to what D.A. Carson describes. He says, quote, We must picture the disciples reclining on thin mats or on a low table. Each is leaning on his arm, usually the left. The feet radiate outward from the table, end quote. Can you imagine then the thoughts that must have been running through the disciples' minds as their master and teacher begins to get up from his mat? What, what is he doing? That's awfully embarrassing. He's taking off his clothes. And he's wrapping a towel around himself. Especially in light of the fact that they have possibly and most likely have just been arguing over who is the greatest, who will be the greatest in the kingdom. Knowing what the Lord is about to do, it's harder. Uh, it's hard for us to slow down and realize that this moment, in and of itself, would have meant to the men looking on it uh, in that moment. Once again, as we have done in previous sermons, as we talk about the humility of Christ, let's turn over to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Think of this. Think of the words of this hymn that Paul incorporates into his letter to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2. As Paul is seeking to get the Philippians to understand, and, and by way of that also us, that they need to be unified, the, the way of unity is through humility. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit um, that, that you might um, in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Don't look for your own interests only, but also for the interests of others. Then verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, he did not parade around the fact that 
He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But emptied himself, I think it's better to translate that, he, he made himself of no reputation by taking the form of, what does it say? A servant. Can, you, can we pause for a moment and just think about this? In this moment, we see exemplified in what Jesus does this very thing. This very idea of servanthood. Though he has been putting it on display his entire earthly ministry, now he has turned from public ministry to private discourse with his disciples and he humiliates himself, as it were. He humbles himself. And in this moment, literally takes the form of a servant. We understand the theological aspect of this, that the eternal Son of God would put on humanity. But here he takes the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The truth to keep in mind is that this was an expression of what Jesus had already done. You turn back over to John as we think about this. This is an expression. As Jesus takes off his robe and, and wraps a towel around himself, this is an expression of what he has already done. He had left the glories of being at his Father's side which he has always known and made himself of no reputation, taking on humanity on behalf of all who would ever believe. So even as we look forward to the cross and the the disrobing that would happen there in humility, we look back into eternity, as it were, into the great Trinitarian plan of the fact that he would set aside his glorious robes, as it were, from heaven and put on the towel of human flesh. Keep this in mind as we move forward. We are to take the example of Jesus as our own. As we consider what it is not only to gather as the church, but the way in which we live our lives as believers unto God, in our families, our communities, and with each other, even outside of Sunday mornings, we are to recognize that none of us truly has a higher place than the other. We are to take the position of those who are here to serve Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Fathers, mothers, serve your children. Children, be obedient. Serve your parents. It's not in the sense of servitude as we often think about it. We, we, we buck against this as you know, rugged, individualistic Americans. I'm my own person. Jesus says you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. And King Jesus takes off his robes and wraps a towel around his waist. And later on says, we'll see this morning, now you do the same to his disciples. How dare we? How dare we not stoop to the level that our Savior stoops? How dare we? If you're here and not in Christ, know this. The greater example of this love to which this points is indeed the cross of Jesus. God loves the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish 
but have eternal life. But the one who does not believe is condemned already. And if you've not trusted in Christ, you are condemned this morning. My call to you is to not just see Jesus as the one who disrobes and wraps a towel around himself and takes the form of a a servant and washes his disciples' feet. But ultimately what that points to, it points back to his humility in coming And it points to the reality from this perspective in John 13 forward to why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that includes you if you would repent of your sins and trust in him this morning. And that is my call to you. Trust in him today. Next we see Jesus not only takes the position of a servant, but he also, number two, serves his men. He does not just uh, play act here. Guys, I want to give you a visual illustration of what it means to be a servant. I'm going to disrobe and put on a towel. No, he does an action that serves them. Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What must these disciples have thought now? As not only Jesus has taken the position of a servant, but he begins to do the menial task of the least of them. Now, think of this. Jesus has not yet said a word. He has not spoken anything. But he has got up and he has acted. Jesus does not explain yet what he is doing to them. He just serves them. Can you imagine the Lord of the universe, the one who created you and me, stooping low and dressed as a servant, gently holding your feet and beginning to wash them. Feet are kind of disgusting, let's just be honest. Not a big fan of seeing your feet, though I make you see mine a lot because I like to wear flip-flops, sorry. If you knew the reason why I had to do that, you would like my feet even less, my kids know. Gross. But we must also keep in mind the nature of their travel. They wore sandals all the time. See, I'm just being like them. Jesus wore sandals, so do I. But we must keep in mind the nature of their travel and their means of footwear. And these days, their footwear would have been sandals, and the roads would have been not just dusty, but filthy, including waste from animals that traveled the same roads. They did not have the same concept of uh, sanitary uh, ways that that we have today. They, they, They didn't have that. And as Jesus engages in this activity, they must be wondering, what in the world is he doing? In fact, the first words spoken are not from Jesus, but from Peter. Because this is his exact question. Look at verse... Six, he came to Simon Peter. And we're not surprised by this, are we? We know Simon Peter. Uh, he's, the, he's the head honcho. He's the head disciple here. He's the one who's got to speak up. He can't hold back, you know. He's kind of like Jason Alligan sometimes. He can't not talk. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And that is, that's the expression in the original there. Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, he's, you know, he's a little bit uh, bipolar here. You know? Jesus said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. Like, I want to share in you. I, I want to, this is the idea of communion. I want to have communion with you. Therefore, if there's no communion without the washing of feet, then I must need to be washed all over. Lord, wash all of me. First it's, Lord, you wash my feet. You're never going to wash my feet. If, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Then wash all of me. Jesus said to him, verse 10, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Is it possible as Peter is sitting there and he's observing the Lord taking these actions and perhaps there is now uh, this idea of guilt maybe a bit like, ooh, we forgot to do that, didn't we? And now the very Lord who we follow is getting up and having to do this. We're a bunch of dolts. We forgot to wash our feet. Master... You will not wash my feet. Maybe the disciples realize that they should be in the position in which Jesus is in this moment. In other words, Lord, is it you that wash my feet? Perhaps as an echo of, Lord, really, I should be the one washing your feet. I mean, this is reversed. You, you are the master and the teacher. What are you doing washing my feet? I, I should be the one washing your feet. Indeed, it was the job of the follower to wash the master's feet. It was always the job for the lowest to wash the more esteemed. And then perhaps guilt begins to creep in because they think, what have we been arguing about? Who is the grace in the kingdom? We're going to elbow our way to the top of the table and sit next to the master. And perhaps they're starting to understand what it is Jesus is doing. Who is the greatest? <laughs> who is the, I mean, think about who's the greatest in that room. It's Jesus. And now he stoops to wash their feet. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus replies in his typical way. He says, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand is Jesus referring to what they will understand once he is done or what they will understand as they see him go to the cross? Well, we're not certain, but it certainly could be both. Not only is Jesus exemplifying a model of service as he washes their feet, but also is directing them to the reality of what is to be done at the cross. And in the midst of it, in typical Peter fashion, he refuses to then have the Lord wash his feet, missing the point but certainly unintentionally highlighting it simultaneously. <laughs> Lord, shall you wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. That's the point, Peter. 
it, it seems upside down. It seems to be in reverse. It seems that if Jesus is firstly pointing them toward a model of service and secondly pointing them to a picture of what he will do on the cross, he thirdly engages them in the thought about the need of continual cleansing. As we think about Jesus' interaction here with uh, Peter, Peter, of course, jumps to, if I, if I must do this in order to be a part of you, then I want to be completely washed. And, and we understand that. We, we get the sentiment, do we not? That he is, uh, he is saying, Lord, I, I, I want to be in communion with you, therefore wash all of me. Maybe we would have responded the same way. And, and, and Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm not saying that you're not a part of me. In total. If you've already been bathed, the only thing that needs washing is your feet. What's Jesus implying here? Peter, you're already reconciled to me. You already are a believer. You have been justified. Though the cross is yet to come, all who were previous to the cross are justified by the same cross, by the same resurrection that we look back upon. So, for those who are in Christ, we do not need the whole body cleansing of justification. We've already been justified. That is done at a point in time. But we do need the continual cleansing of the sanctifying work of Christ. In other words, though we have been justified at a point in time, we are continuing to uh, think about things in Scripture. We're having our minds renewed, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are continuing to be set apart, uh, sanctified for use by God, 2 Timothy 2, 21. And as we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 This is what He's saying to Peter. We have been cleansed through the washing of regeneration, but there is a continual cleansing that goes on in our sanctification which is ongoing. As we consider these truths, we must check our own hearts to see if we see evidences of the sanctifying work of Christ in our lives. Being justified is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card and, and, and now I can live any way I want to live. No, when you are justified, when you are regenerated, you are given a, a new heart and a new disposition. You are given the Holy Spirit and you Desire the things of God. Do you still wrestle with sin? Of course you do, just like I do. Romans chapter 7, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Did I say that right? It's right in your mind. You got it. But that sanctifying word, I hate my sin, don't I? I hate that I still struggle with sin. Uh, I'm like Paul at the end of Romans chapter 7 where he says, Wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? He's talking about the final redemption, glorification of our bodies to be rid of the flesh. So we need this continual cleansing. There's an inner change within us so that even when we sin, we seek to be cleansed for usefulness again for the service to Christ and His body. Do you understand? We have been washed. If you're in Christ, you you have been justified. But 
There are times where we sin still and we need that foot washing, that cleansing. But perhaps you are one who is here this morning in our midst and you have not had that initial washing of regeneration, of justification. Just as Jesus says here that there is one in their midst who is not clean. Judas, the betrayer. Again, John being able to look back upon what has been in the history for him for decades now recognizes what's going on with Judas Iscariot here. And though Judas, in my opinion, I don't think was ever redeemed from that rebellion, from that betrayal, you who are one who is here this morning who are a betrayer of Christ and rebellious toward Christ and towards the triune God, have an opportunity this morning to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. And so, don't be Judas. Be cleansed today. Repent and believe the gospel. He then brings us all back around to the main reason he has done this, as we see in our third point. Jesus calls his men to serve each other in the same way. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus now draws upon the exact things the disciples and you and I would have been thinking at this event. The things that Peter, excuse me, was bold enough to actually speak. Jesus now explains this. This is, um, I, I think S. Lewis Johnson again is right in saying, this is a living parable. Remember, Jesus would... You know, speak parables and everybody's, all the disciples are kind of nodding in agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later on they're like, Jesus, what did that mean? This is kind of a living parable. And and their their confusion is visible and, and, and Peter actually speaks it. But he explains in verses 13 through 15. Look, look at it. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so... What does he say? So I am. There's that beautiful phrase that we've seen repeatedly in the Gospel of John. That he has said publicly so many times, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am Yahweh. Now privately with his men. They can't get away from this fact. He is Lord. So I am. Can, can, can you imagine? I, I kind of imagine their brains exploding at that point. Yahweh just washed my feet. So I am, he says. Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The reasoning he gives is that if their master does such a thing, they ought to be willing to do the same to one another. Now, is this an establishment of an ordinance for the church? Some have taken it as that. Some, some have taken this as, you know, we need to be washing each other's feet at a foot washing ceremony just as often as we, you know, take the Lord's table or perhaps when we're doing baptisms or something along those lines. I don't think that that's the case. I understand the reasoning of that and the traditions 
uh, from which that comes. But I don't think that, that he is establishing this. I think it's broader than that. I think it's we ought to be serving each other in servanthood kinds of ways. And that's not to diminish those who take it in, such, in that way. And I pray that that enhances that understanding rather than minimizes it. I don't, I don't think it typically does. But I think overall he's saying you need to be willing to be the least in the room. You need to be the one who walks into the room and thinks not who is going to serve me, but who can I serve? Indeed, he calls them to mimic this and then promises blessing if they look at, do. Look at verses 16 and 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, the Bible is filled with one another commands. Basically, what Christ has already stated was that they were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. And he is expressing this to them in the way that he is doing what he is doing. He's expressing certainly love for them. Remember John's language at the beginning of this. He has loved them to the end and he expresses that love in this way. He also is expressing his desire to love and obey the Father because what is this a precursor to? To the cross. This is the, the precursor to the cross. So he is exemplifying this for them. Dear ones, here we see the call of our master, not only to his disciples, but to us to be like him. We cannot exercise the one another's without being a part of a local assembly. And as we are a part of a local assembly, we must continue to serve one another. Whether one has an official title or, do, or not does not matter. You know, the, the Lord is the Lord and he serves. And, and he's the Lord. <laughs> but whether or not you have some sort of a title doesn't matter. If you're an elder or a deacon, there is a particular accountability associated with those offices. But even those without office... You are to seek to serve the body as Christ served the disciples here and then goes on to serve the church at the cross. How low did Christ stoop? He became a man. The eternally divine one put on humanity. He put on the towel of servanthood as it were. The God-man. As we consider our posture as servants and how low we will stoop in serving, we must now as now ask ourselves, if Jesus is willing to do this, am I reluctant to do so? As we consider that, what posture we will take, how low we will stoop, our reluctancy to be like the master, we must also consider how the, the world views us. What would it be like if the world were to come and look into the life of FBC? 
Would they see those who claim to be disciples caring for one another, loving one another, the way Christ has demonstrated, the way he has asked us to demonstrate it? What's the next example that Jesus gives in the timeline of his earthly ministry? He goes to the cross. He dies for the sake of sinners. And we think about, again, that exhortation in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul gives us. Have this mind in you that is in Christ Jesus. And we think, there it is. (laughs) There's the command. And of course, we know that the cross is not just an example, but by the way in which we are washed clean and made part of his body. And it is the finished work of the cross to which we look, even when we fall short, seeking forgiveness as we are set apart for the work of God and his body and to the world. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to comfort and convict us and to remind us that we are not only washed clean, that we can seek forgiveness and confession, but also a reminder to us that he is coming to get us. And when he does, our flesh will be glorified as well. Now listen, we are certainly not perfect in our humility. But the one who has been our substitute upon the cross, the greatest humiliation of all time has been our substitute. And he is our example and the one to whom we look as the author and perfecter of our faith who can continue to work this work of sanctification in us. We submit to him as he makes us more and more into his image. And we strive to live like him, not as a means of earning anything, but because he has earned it all and he has given us his righteousness. We live in this way. Lastly, if you're here this morning and you've not come to grips with your sinfulness and what it is that Christ did on the cross for sinners... The echo of that is in the foot washing, but the reality of it is at the cross. My call to you is to turn from your sin and trust in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, even as we think of the greater context of this passage being your instruction to your men, first through example and then through teaching and all the promises you make in regard to the Holy Spirit coming and You're going back to glory with your Father and all of those things. We do see the application this morning for us that we are to exemplify this in our lives as well as fathers and husbands, as wives and mothers, as fellow members of one another in this representation of your universal body here at Fellowship Bible Church. If conviction is necessary in our hearts, Lord, let that be, but let it also be soothed, comforted by the fact that, Lord, you have done this already. And we don't have to replicate our justification, Lord. You have accomplished that through your perfect life, death, and resurrection. We are beneficiaries of your righteousness, and therefore we can go and live these things out. So help us to do that. And yes, help us to confess, Lord, as we sin day by day, but help us to remember that we have already been bathed. And then, Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that today might be the day that they would turn from their sin and trust in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.